Hi, Big Ben Ray here. This is for the record program number 1233. How many lies before you belong to the lie? Part 6. This is being recorded on March 11th of the year 2022. Very quickly, three links before we get to the broadcast itself. Uh, these are at the top of each written for the record description. Uh, this format that I use is uh, nothing if not pedantic. I, I turn, if, if you're a newer listener, I turn every program into a long written description, uh, specifically so that listeners who find uh, one one listener described my program as, as a long run-on sentence. Uh, if that seems to be the case for you, uh, please do use the for-the-record descriptions. Those will enable you to read the printed sources from which this program is derived uh, at length and in detail. Now, at the top of each of such, each of those for the record descriptions and at the top of each food for thought post there are three links one of those will enable you to subscribe to the comments that are made by intelligent listeners most of them by our brilliant contributing editor perifractal those are increasingly important as there is no way <laughs> that i can do justice to uh uh, even a, a nice chunk of what is going on uh, in a one-hour program. There's a link to click on to subscribe to those comments. They also feed along the front page of the For the Record, uh, the SpitfireList.com website. The second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that Sister Station WFMU is doing. Uh, again, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting for the record. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, and that is the case increasingly as time and technology march on, WFMU is podcasting the program. And last but not least, uh, all of my 43 years, uh, or virtually all of my 43 years of programming and written material, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books, are available on a 32 gigabyte flash drive. Basically, the vast bulk of what is on the SpitfireList.com website, including, as I said, my roughly 43 years of uh, material on the air and written. They are all available on a 32-gigabyte flash drive for a very small amount of money, and that is tax-deductible if you itemize deductions. I do not get a dime from that, so please do that. Um, I could not... Be more pessimistic about what is going on. I've been warning for some time that I think we are headed for a third world war. That does not seem like such a remote possibility. But uh, uh, we will see how far things go in uh, Ukraine and or Asia. Um, in, in the event, uh, all of the material that I did on the Oswald Institute of Virology is available on that Flash drive, and I think there is no more important piece 
of political scientific research uh, that has ever been done than the work on the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic as a U.S. biological warfare weapon. And the evidence is very sadly overwhelming in that regard. Again, all of the Oswald Institute of Virology programs, some 13 of them, plus a lot of other supplemental material, uh, is on that flash drive. So please get it. Uh, who knows uh, how far or how bad things are going to get. I think we are at the end, basically, of our civilization, more or less. And, uh, you know, when I finish the series that I'm doing about uh, the Ukraine war and what led up to it. Because again, the title of this is How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lie? I'll talk about that in a second. We now belong to the lie and the fact of the matter is that the lie has been constructed uh, over a period of decades and I think although I have covered uh, the material that I'm going to be downloading for the most part in the past. I think I have never done that in a sequence with the sequence of material about Ukraine. And I think uh, since we are basically uh, more or less at the end, uh, and since this country and much of the world at this point belongs to the lie, I think how that lie has been constructed, as well as the truths that its construction has been meant to obscure, are worth building into at some length. When I finish that, I'm going to do a program updating the uh, coronavirus slash SARS-CoV-2. And I have not talked about climate change. I'm going to be doing uh, a series involving climate change, I think, we are at the end. Someone asked me uh, some time ago, well, what about the UFO op? When do you think that's coming? Well, I think I'm seeing signs that that is uh, in the offing. I don't know when, how many more years or maybe months, who knows. But I think the apocalyptic immediate future looming with climate change and other things uh, and uh, the, quote, UFO op and a lot of things that will seem very far afield, I think, are worth uh, discussing at some length. And I'm also, I think, because we are basically at the end, and uh, an awful lot of people are going to be setting a new world's indoor record for death, I think discussing a little bit about uh, the nature of human existence, uh, my views on... Uh, physics, uh, some aspects of Buddhism, and uh, the nature of life and existence, because I think as, as pessimistic as I am about the future, and I will make no mistake about it, I think we're doomed, uh, I think there is definitely more to this world than just a bunch of molecules bumping into one another. And uh, as I said to someone recently why I keep doing this research, I'm only in it for the karma. And I mean that quite literally. So uh, uh, that is what we will be talking about uh, in in subsequent programs. But in the series we're doing now, how many lies before you belong to the lie? That quote comes from the autobiography Heartland, published in 1976 by the late, brilliant 
stand-up political comedian Mort Saul. Mort Saul, not incidentally, was one of New Orleans D.A. Jim Garrison's investigators when he was investigating the assassination of JFK. And again, in his autobiography in 1976, titled Heartland, Mort Saul asked the question, how many lies before you belong to the lie? In other words, how many lies can you allow yourself to believe before you belong to the lie? I think I might amend that and say, how many lies can you allow yourself to believe before you become the embodiment of the lie, before you yourself become part of the lie walking around on two legs? And uh, as I've said in several programs, and we'll be uh, saying again and documenting again in this one, uh, the war in Ukraine and its attendant coverage, uh, a fevered, pathological coverage, are working rather like the philosopher's stone of the old alchemists was said to work and transforming lead into gold. Only in this case, uh, it is uh, doing something uh, dramatically opposite to that. It is turning truth into fresh fertilizer and... Uh, it is something truly informal. But I think uh, that alchemy, that philosopher's stone of the war and its attendant coverage is turning our culture and many of our individuals and institutions into something like Volodymyr Vyotrovich's Ukrainian Institute of National Memory, which is completely rewriting the World War II history of Ukraine, presenting the villains as heroes, and uh, as an author uh, that we are going to talk about later, uh, said, within a generation in Ukraine, uh, children will have a completely perverted view of the Holocaust and other goings-on during the Second World War in Ukraine. And that is, in my opinion, the goal. Uh, I think that what is going on is literally pathological. It reminds me of the two minutes of hate in George Orwell's 1984. What we're seeing, too, is the embodiment of what Orwell said when he observed that, quote, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful, murder respectable, and to give the appearance of solidity to pure air. And there's a lot of that pure air, maybe not so pure air, considering where it comes from, that is being presented as solidity. Something that I will put in the written description for this program, uh, exemplifying the alchemy, the political and historical alchemy that is turning uh, this country's political culture and its news institutions and many of its individuals uh, into uh, something uh, like something of the same fabric as Volodymyr Vyotrovich's Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. Uh, there was an interview in the New York Times in, on March 2nd and also uh, around the same time an interview on the PBS NewsHour of a Nazi mayor 
of the city of Kanapop. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, K-O-N-O-T-O-P. It's, uh, the gentleman's name is Artem uh, Semenikin, uh, Semenikin, and again, I'm probably butchering that pronunciation as well. He is a member of Svoboda, one of the Nazi parties in Ukraine that was involved with the uh, false flag sniper shootings in the Maidan killing, then occupied many of the key ministries in the provisional government that was set up after the overthrow of Yanukovych. And uh, it, again, is an explicitly Nazi party. When he was elected mayor of Kanapop uh, in 2015, he replaced the picture of Petro, then President Petro Poroshenko with a picture of Stefan Bondera, the head of the OUNB. That was the top third-right collaborationist organization in Ukraine during World War II. Uh, PBS did an interview with him in which he was presented as uh, a, an anti-Russian freedom fighter and hero, etc., etc. And there was no mention of the fact that he was a member of Svoboda. And even though uh, Mr. Semenikin had uh, blurred, used his Zoom function to blur the background in uh, the video, uh, the picture of Stefan Bondera on his wall was still quite visible and recognizable as such. Uh, at, that drew no comment from uh, the uh, hero makers uh, of PBS's news hour, as I joked in the comment, I think uh, in light of what is going on and that alchemy that I alluded to, uh, the PBS News Hour should drop the P from its title and just become the BS News Hour, because that is what is going on. Something else that exemplifies that alchemy to which I referred was a, a full-page advertisement in the New York Times. I'll put a link if I can find it. Uh, I don't know if they have links for advertisements, but on the Western edition of the New York Times print edition, on page A7 of this past Thursday, March 10th of 2022, there was a paid advertisement featuring a large number of Nobel laureates who support Ukraine. And this is an, in the move that recalls the infamous attack of Nazi Germany on Poland in 1939, you know, so, so, uh, they say, we stand with Ukraine, but separate is a formidable number of Nobel laureates who are listed uh, as signatories to this, uh, the <laughs> ad was paid for by the Ukrainian World Congress. That is one of the OUN affiliated organizations that we have been speaking about. Uh, a March 2019 article of Covert Action magazine uh, described the Ukrainian World Congress as follows, and again we had this on uh, a, well, several past programs from, again, from March of 2019, an article from Covert Action magazine, imagined Central and Eastern European geographies and the, the revival of the Intermarium concept. Uh, we went into that at some length in uh, for the record uh, 1229 and at much greater length in a four-program series, 1098 through 1101. In 1967, 
The World Congress of Free Ukrainians was founded in New York City by supporters of Andrei Melnik, the head of the OUNN, also allied with Nazi Germany, as was the OUNB of Stefan Bandera, whose portrait Mr. Artem Semenikin had on his back wall. Speaking of the World Congress of Free Ukrainians, it was renamed the Ukrainian World Congress in 1993. In 2003, the Ukrainian World Congress was recognized by the United Nations Economic and Social Council as an NGO with special consultative status. It now appears as a sponsor of the Atlantic Council. And as we noted, the continuity of institutional and individual trajectories from Second World War collaborationists to Cold War-era anti-communist organizations to contemporary conservative U.S. think tanks is significant for the ideological underpinnings of today's intermarium revival. Yes, indeed. And recall that uh, I, I said that I think the... Ukraine war was a baited trap. The ultimate goal is regime change in Moscow, and I think that it is a European iteration or recapping of the Afghanistan gambit in which Big Beth Brzezinski, uh, the Galen slash ABN milieu length national security advisor of Jimmy Carter, uh, put together a covert operation specifically intending to lure the Soviets into invading Afghanistan to give them their, quote, the Vietnam, unquote, which helped to bring down the Soviet Union. I think this was intended to do something similar to uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. I would note that Ian Brzezinski, Big Neff Brzezinski's son, is a key member of the Atlantic Council. And, uh, you know, as complex as this is in certain respects, and we're going to be going into uh, what for veteran listeners will be reviewed, uh, because I've never spoken about uh, the large amount of documentation about the return of the OUNB successor organizations to power in Ukraine in connection with this in a uh, continuous fashion. But the as complex as this is in some ways, uh, it really isn't all that damn complex at all if one uh, takes a look at the, some of what is going on. The, uh, the very first of these programs in Football Record 1228, we talked about something that happened just before Christmas, in fact, I believe it was on Christmas Eve, uh, the United Nations took a vote, and specifically, uh, it passed by a hundred and thirty-four and two nations voting against it. Uh, by its terms, the assembly expressed deep concern about the glorification of the Nazi movement, neo-Nazism, and former members of the Waffen-SS organization, including by erecting monuments and memorials holding public demonstrations in the name of the glorification of the Nazi past, the Nazi movement, and neo-Nazism, and declaring or attempting to declare such members and those who fought against the anti-Hitler coalition, collaborated with the Nazi movement, and committed war crimes and crimes against humanity, quote, participants in national liberation movements, unquote. That is exactly what the uh, Ukrainian Institute of National Memory under Volodymyr Vyotrovich is doing just exactly that. And in that 
written description, as in many other posts and uh, program descriptions, I posted a large full-color picture of the celebration in the city of Lvov in 2018 of the 75th anniversary of the founding of the 14th Waffen-SS, or Galician, division, many of whose members came straight from the OUNB and the UPA. And in the background, you have uh, two either NCOs or enlisted men in uh, SS camouflage uniforms and combat helmets, and someone in, uh, in an officer's helmet behind, uh, officer's uh, dress uniform behind them. Uh, the Ukrainian armor guard can very clearly be seen in the background with the Ukrainian flag. Uh, this is really quite simple. Question. What kind of government celebrates the SS? Answer, a Nazi government. Uh, question, what kind of government puts in power a Nazi government, as we did with the Maidan uh, coup and uh, false flag operation in 2014? Answer, a Nazi government. 130 nations voted for this motion. Two countries voted against it. The names of both of those countries begin with the letter U. They are the United States and Ukraine, period. That basically says it right there. But with the alchemy of the war and its attendant coverage, we are all basically, or that the society as a whole, is becoming like the Ukrainian Institute of national memory. They are uh, morphing into, uh, at the very minimum, Nazi collaboration, Nazi apologists. Uh, one of the stated war aims of Vladimir Putin was the denazification of Ukraine, and that has been widely dissed. Uh, you know, that this, this ad, full-page ad in the New York Times, uh, the Nobel laureate supporting Ukraine, paid for by the Ukrainian World Congress, one of the offshoots of the very elements we've been talking about for so many of these years. Uh, one of the central elements in rebutting the absolutely valid contention by Vladimir Putin that uh, Ukraine is, in effect, a Nazi state, uh, is the fact that Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is Jewish. He is not at all clear that he is a practicing Jew, but he has certainly touted his Jewish identity or heritage, uh, and it has been trumpeted and uh, repeated many times as proof that uh, Putin is uh, a madman, etc. One of the searing ironies of this is that basically this is a Nazi iteration of identity politics. They are saying, in effect, he couldn't be a Nazi because he's a Jew, uh, the SS would be proud of that, no doubt. Uh, not that people are claiming specifically that uh, Zelensky is a Nazi, but they're saying that the, the government over which he presides couldn't be a Nazi government because he is a Jew. And that, basically, that, as they say, that dog won't hunt. Uh, these days, as that alchemy I've been talking about uh, kicks in, my pukometer has been p 
pinned in the red. The needles have been pinned in the red, and nothing uh, elevated my pukometer more than uh, an editorial, again, in the Western edition of the Sunday New York Times of March 6th. Mr. Zelensky's heroic resistance is an example for the world. And it goes on and on and on about how great he is. He's an actor, by the way, and uh, of course, having an actor as president of the country is something that would never happen here. I mean, just imagine, you know, having a, say, a B-grade movie actor becoming president, say, maybe Ronald Reagan, couldn't happen here. Or maybe even a reality television star, say, Donald Trump, that couldn't happen here. Obviously, I'm being facetious. But we're going to take a look at... uh Zelensky and what I have sarcastically termed the Jewish question. Uh, that is the Nazi euphemism for uh, the, quote, Jewish problem, which was uh, administered by a final solution that is well known. We're going to read from an article from Consortium News, originally from the Gray Zone by Alex Rubenstein and Max Blumenthal. This from the Consortium News of March 4th of 2022. How Zelensky made peace with neo-Nazis. And some key excerpts of this before we read a nice chunk of the article. Uh, As always in politics, follow the mummy, who financed Zelensky's candidacy, reading from that gray zone and consortium news article. Zelensky's top financial backer, the Ukrainian Jewish oligarch Ihor Kolomoskoy, has been a key benefactor of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other extremist militias. Kolomoskoy, a Ukrainian energy baron of Jewish heritage, has been a top funder of Azov since it was formed in 2014. He has also bankrolled private militias like the Dnipro and Abar battalions, and has deployed them as a personal thug squad to protect his financial interests. Though Zelensky made anti-corruption the signature issue of his campaign, the Pandora Papers exposed him and members of his inner circle staffing large payments from Kolomoyskoy in a shadowy web of offshore accounts. That, too, is very ironic, because one of the... Aspects of the negative anti-Semitic stereotype is that, you know, Jews are mercenary and they're money-grubbing their, quote, Shylocks, unquote. And here we have Zelensky basically behaving in a manner that is disturbingly reminiscent of that anti-Semitic stereotype. Remember also, in addition that a key benefactor of the Azov Battalion is also the primary, was also the primary financial backer of Zelensky. Remember this. They are the ultra-nationalist national militia, street vigilantes with roots in the battle-tested Azov Battalion that emerged to defend Ukraine against Russia-backed separatists, but was also accused of possible war crimes and neo-Nazi sympathies. Yet, despite the controversy surrounding it, the national militia was granted permission by the Central Election Commission to officially monitor Ukraine's presidential election on March 31st. And I'll put a link to a Guardian article from three years ago that shows these guys. And uh, they are, they were the election monitors. Uh, note also, in March of 2019, members of the Azov Battalion's National Corps attacked the home of Viktor Medvedchuk, the leading opposition figure in Ukraine, accusing him of treason for his friendly relations with Vladimir 
Putin. Zelensky's administration escalated the attack on the Vejit, suffering several media outlets he controlled in February 2021, with the open approval of the U.S. State Department and jailing the opposition leader for treason three months later. Zelensky justified his actions on the grounds that he needed to, quote, to fight against the danger of Russian aggression in the information arena, unquote. Next, in August of 2020, Azov's National Corps opened fire on a bus containing members of Medvedchuk's party, Patriots for Life, wounding several with rubber-coated steel bullets. And recently, according to one Greek resident in Mariupol, a city that's been getting a lot of publicity about uh, during the, the, the combat, recently interviewed by a Greek news station, quote, When you try to leave, you run the risk of running into a patrol of the Ukrainian fascists, the Azov Battalion, he said, adding, quote, they would kill me if I was responsible for everything, unquote. Footage posted online appears to show uniformed members of a fascist Ukrainian militia in Mariupol violently pulling fleeing residents out of their vehicles at gunpoint. Other video filmed at checkpoints around Mariupol showed Azov fighters shooting and killing civilians attempting to flee. Now, the article itself, or part of it, Again, how Zelensky made peace with neo-Nazis by Alex Rubenstein and Max Blumenthal of the Grey Zone Consortium News, March 4th of 2022. Bear in mind that his top financial backer was a key backer of the Azov Battalion. Bear in mind that the one of his political opponents was terrorized by the national militia. Bear in mind also that the election monitors were Azov's uh, national regime militia. Uh, note that initially uh, Zelensky appears to have attempted to become something of a peace broker in the civil war in the eastern provinces of Ukraine, but that basically he not only ran afoul of like, elements like Azov, but was threatened by them, at which point he completely knuckled under and basically conformed to the dictates of his main financial backer, Kolomoyskoy. <clears throat> Back in October of 2019, as the war in eastern Ukraine dragged on, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky traveled to Zelote, a town situated firmly in the gray zone of Donbass, where over 14,000 had been killed, mostly on the pro-Russian side. There, the president encountered the hardened veterans of extreme right paramilitary units, keeping up the fight against separatists just a few miles away. Elected on a platform of de-escalation of hostilities with Russia, Zelensky was determined to enforce the so-called Steinmeier formula, conceived by then-German Foreign Minister Walter Steinmeier, which called for elections in the Russian-speaking regions of Donetsk and Lukansk. In a face-to-face confrontation with the militias from the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, who had launched a campaign to sabotage the peace initiative called No to Capitulation, Zelensky encountered a wall of obstinacy. With appeals for disengagement from the front lines firmly rejected, Zelensky melted down on camera. I'm the president of this country. I'm 41 years old. I'm not a loser. I came to you and I told you to remove the weapons, Zelensky implored the fighters. Once video of the stormy confrontation spread across Ukrainian social media channels, Zelensky became the target of an angry backlash. Andrei Boletsky, the proudly fascist Azov battalion leader who once pledged to, quote, lead the white races of the world in a final crusade against Semite-led 
under mention, that would bring thousands of fighters to Zelote if Zelensky pressed any further. Meanwhile, a parliamentarian from the party of former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko openly fantasized about Zelensky being blown to bits by a militant's grenade. Skipping down. This February 24th, when Russian President Vladimir Putin sent troops into Ukrainian territory on a stated mission to, quote, demilitarize and denazify the country, U.S. media embarked on a mission of its own to deny the power of neo-Nazi paramilitaries over the country's military and political sphere. And I would add again, it is much more profound than that. The intermarium continuity, as I have spoken about it, and the Azov manifestation, not just the Azov battalion in the Ukrainian National Guard, but the fact that their former deputy commander became uh, initially chief of police in Kiev and head of the National Police, which adopted the old OUNB salute, as did the Ukrainian military. He then became a, a top assistant to the interior minister, that kind of Vadim Troyan. Uh, the fact that the personal secretary to Yaroslav Stetsko, the wartime leader of collaborationist Ukraine, Ukraine, uh, Roman Svarich, was the spokesperson for a major recruiter for and financer of the Azov Battalion, and he also was Minister of Justice, the equivalent of Attorney General under Viktor Yuchenko and both Timoshenko governments. Uh, the continuity, and this is one of the things we're going to be going into as we recap the history and how many lies we have been told and how it comes that we now belong to the lie, that continuity and the Azov manifestation, including the ISG conferences in which Azov off uh, networks with other fascists, including military attaches and defense officials, active and former, from other Eastern European governments. It is much more than just the Azov Battalion. As the U.S. government-funded, returning to the article, as the U.S. government-funded National Public Radio insisted, Putin's language about denazification is offensive and factually wrong, unquote. Again, <laughs> uh, part of the uh, alchemy turning everything into the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory. Continuing, in its bid to deflect from the influence of Nazism in contemporary Ukraine, U.S. media has found its most effective PR tool in the figure of Zelensky, a former TV star and comedian from a Jewish background. It is a role the actor-turned-politician has eagerly assumed. But as we will see, Zelensky has not only ceded ground to the neo-Nazis in his midst, he has entrusted them with a front-line role in the country's war against pro-Russian and Russian forces. Hours before Putin's February 24th speech declaring denazification as the goal of Russian operations, Zelensky, quote, asked how a people who lost 8 million of its citizens fighting Nazis could support Nazism, unquote according to the BBC. Oh, very easy. Look at that picture that I have of the uh, celebration of the SS. Couldn't be more clear. Raised in a non-religious Jewish family in the Soviet Union during the 1980s, Zelensky has downplayed his heritage in the past. The fact that I am Jewish barely makes 20 in my long list of faults, unquote. He joked during a 2019 interview in which he declined to go into further detail about his religious background. 
Today, as Russian troops bear down on cities like Mariupol, which is effectively under the control of the Azov Battalion, Zelensky is no longer ashamed to broadcast his Jewishness. Quote, How could that be a Nazi? He wondered aloud during a public address. For a U.S. media engaged in an all-out information war against Russia, the president's Jewish background has become an essential public relations tool. A few examples of the U.S. media's deployment of Zelensky as a shield against allegations of rampant Nazism in Ukraine are below. PBS NewsHour noted Putin's comments on denazification with a qualifier, quote, even though President Volodymyr Zelensky is a Jew, is Jewish, and his great uncles died in the Holocaust, unquote. On Fox and Friends, former CIA officer Dan Hoffman declared that, quote, it's the height of hypocrisy to call the Ukrainian nation to be not survived. Their president is Jewish after all, unquote. On MSNBC, Virginia Democratic Senator Mark Warner said Putin's, quote, terminology outrageous and obnoxious as it is to be not survived where you've got a frankly Jewish president in Mr. Zelensky. This guy Putin is on his own kind of personal jihad to restore greater Russia, unquote. Republican Senator Marshall Blackburn said on Fox Business, quote, she's been impressed with President Zelensky and how he has stood up. And for Putin to go up there and say, quote, we're going to denazify and Zelensky is Jewish, unquote. In an interview with CNN's Wolf Blitzer, General John Allen denounced Putin's use of the term denazify, while the newsman and former Israel lobbyist shook his head in disgust. In a separate interview with Blitzer, the so-called Ukraine whistleblower and Ukraine-born Alexander Vindman grumbled that the claim is, quote, patently absurd. There's really no merit. You pointed out that Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish. The Jewish community is, has embraced him. It's central to the country, and there is nothing to this Nazi narrative, this fascist narrative. It's fabricated as a pretext, unquote. Behind the corporate media spin lies the complex and increasingly close relationship Zelensky's administration has enjoyed with the neo-Nazi forces invested with key military and political posts by the Ukrainian state, and the power of these open fascists have enjoyed since Washington installed a Western-allied regime through a coup in 2014. In fact, Zelensky's top financial backer, the Ukrainian Jewish oligarch Ihor Kolomoyskoy, has been a key benefactor of the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion and other extremist militias. Kolomoyskoy, a Ukrainian energy baron of Jewish heritage himself, has been a top funder of Azov since it was formed in 2014. He has also bankrolled private militias like the Dimitro and the Abar battalions and has deployed them as a personal thug squad to protect his financial interests. In 2019, Kolomoyskoy emerged as the top backer of Zelensky's presidential bid. Though Zelensky made anti-corruption the signature issue of his campaign, the Pandora Papers exposed him and members of his inner circle staffing large payments from Kolomoyskoy in a shadowy web of offshore accounts. Again, it's ironic that that mercenary aspect of Kolomoyskoy's presidential behavior corresponds to a T with the anti-Semitic stereotype of Jews as mercenary, money-grubbing, you know, Shylocks, etc. And again, bear in mind who the election monitors were. 
quoting from a Radio Free Europe article, they are the ultra-nationalist national militia, and basically the Azov battalions, the national Drazina militia, street vigilantes with roots in the battle-tested Azov battalion that emerged to defend Ukraine against Russia-backed separatists, but was also accused of possible war crimes and neo-Nazi sympathies. Yet, despite the controversy surrounding it, the National Militia was granted permission by the Central Election Commission to officially monitor Ukraine's presidential election on March 31st. One of the many books available for download for free on the SpitfireList.com website is the very important text, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, authored by Paul Manning. Paul Manning was uh, part of Edward R. Murrow's group of journalists at CBS News during World War II. He trained as a gunner on board uh, American bombers so he could cover the raids into Europe. He was actually credited with shooting down an ME-109 and broadcast the surrender of Germany on the CBS radio network. He undertook his investigation of Martin Bormann, his survival, and the uh, consummately important Borman capital organization with the encouragement of his friend and colleague Edward R. Murrow, and it was underwritten by CBS News. They would not go with the story. And in Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, again available for free on the Spitfire List uh, website, I spoke with one Jewish businessman in Hartford, Connecticut. He had arrived there quite unknown several years before our conversation, but with Borman money as his leverage. Today, he is more than a millionaire, this was 1981, a quiet leader in his community with a certain share of his profits earmarked as always for his venture capital benefactors. This has taken place in many other instances across America and demonstrates how Borman's people operate in the contemporary commercial world in contrast to the fanciful nonsense with which Nazis are described in so much, quote, literature, unquote. So much emphasis is placed on select Jewish participation in Borman companies that when Adolf Eichmann was seized and taken to Tel Aviv to stand trial, it produced a shockwave in the Jewish and German communities of Buenos Aires. Obviously, uh, Jews make a superb cover for a Nazi money machine. One can but wonder if Mr. Kolomoyskoy has been financed with Borman money as well. Uh, regardless, however, there has never been a shortage of Jewish fascists. There is a prominent element within the Zionist movement, was from the beginning, that is now ascendant in Israel, uh, that was explicitly fascist under, uh, oh, Christ, his, uh, uh, name escapes me off, uh, the top of my head, but anyway, it, I'll, I'll put a link to one of the posts, um, Again, in addition to the uh, fascist element within the Zionist movement, there is more than one. Uh, the notion that Jews couldn't be fascists is simply ridiculous. Uh, in the Third Reich per se, a wealthy Jew who was willing to finance the Nazi party was granted honorary Aryan status. Uh, Sir Montague Norman who was the head of the Bank of England and uh, who financed Hitler directly, was Jewish. Neville Chamberlain was his protege and was also, by the way, a major stockholder in Imperial Chemicals, the British IG Farben cartel affiliate. So 
Jewish fascists are not unusual. Uh, it's Vladimir Gabatinsky. That's the guy's name, Isaiah Gabatinsky, as he's called. He was the head of the Vapor, one of the fascist elements uh, within the Zionist movement. There is also the Stern Gang, too. And the Palestinians have pretty much always been uh, Nazi and fascist in their uh, institutional affiliations. I've talked about that many times. Not going to go into that here. Uh, an article that we will not have time to go into in its entirety, but something that I think uh, we'll, we'll read the entire article in the past, even though the article itself is modified, limited hangout, and it could go, and in my opinion should go, much further, we're going to go into the depth that this question needs to be explored in this series as we uh, go onward. But in February of... Uh, Yes, February 22nd of 2019 in The Nation magazine. There was an article by an expatriate Ukrainian Jew named Lev L.E.V. Galinkin, G-O-L-I-N-K-I-N, called Neo-Nazis and the Far Right are on the March in Ukraine. In the very same Sunday edition of the New York Times is that revolting uh, editorial about Zelensky there was an op-ed column by Lev Galinkin called Ukraine's History is Being Erased. He mentions nothing in the entire column about the uh, Nazification of Ukraine uh, and uh, the stated, certainly the stated goal of Putin uh, to denazify Ukraine. Again, that is cited as proof that Putin is a madman. Uh, as I said, I believe uh, Putin was basically baited into the invasion. He, he had a choice, either real bad or much worse. Uh, it looks like there was an, an, an incipient attempt to militarily reconquer uh, Lukansk and Donetsk, the Dnipro Republic. That was the one condition under which I said there would be war. And uh, as we now know, although there's been almost no coverage of this, in fact, Zelensky was saying either NATO or nukes. And so uh, Putin basically was faced with a choice. Do nothing, let uh, Dnipro, in all probability, get reconquered militarily with uh, enormous loss of life to the ethnic Russians in that republic. Uh, and then let uh, Ukraine join NATO, and then once they've joined NATO, uh, they would be free to develop nuclear weapons at will because they could not be attacked. So he basically had a choice between real bad and worse still, and he chose the real bad. Again, I think this was a baited trap, and the real goal of the war itself, which, believe me, the powers that be in this country in the West, they are loving every minute of this, and they want, they're ready to fight to the last Ukrainian, and the more Ukrainian citizens get killed, uh, then the better they like it, and so will the bleeding hearts. You know, oh my God, the civilian casualties in Ukraine. You didn't hear that during the Iraq War, which was um, under completely phony pretexts, and as far as I can tell, sorting through the BS coming uh, our way about the Ukraine war, which is a lot easier said than done, there were a lot more civilians killed in Iraq than have been killed, at least to date, in Ukraine. But what the West wants is dead Ukrainians, and then heroic living Ukrainians to be more in the dead Ukrainians. Uh, they're loving every minute of this. And again, the goal is regime change, in Moscow, as I said. But exemplifying the 
alchemy that is being produced. And I'll, I'll, we'll continue this in our next program. Ukraine's history is being erased by Lev Kalinkin from the New York Times of Sunday, March 6th of 2022. No mention of what he spoke about in this article in uh, the Nation magazine. And this article itself is modified limited hangout in that none of the continuity between the World War II Ukrainian fascists uh, through the Galen organization, the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, through the Republican Party's ethnic outreach organization, uh, through the Galen organization post-war, right on up through the Reagan administration, the Free Congress Foundation's uh, liberation outreach organization, their projection back into the Eastern European fascist, Eastern Europe and uh, the former Soviet Union. Then the continuity between Viktor Yushchenko and his wife, uh, the former Katerina Tumachenko, Reagan's deputy director of public liaison from the UCCA, the top OUNB organization in the U.S. None of that continuity is mentioned here, but Lev Galenkin does talk about what he does not mention one word about in that New York Times editorial, but in the op-ed piece, I should say, if he had, he wouldn't have made it. So we'll begin reading this. Neo-Nazis and the far right are on the march in Ukraine by Lev Galinkin, the nation, February 22nd, 2019. And not again. None of this made it into that New York Times op-ed piece, exemplifying the alchemy uh, I spoke about with the war and its attendant coverage, basically transforming our society and the people in it into the equivalent, uh, the fabric of the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory of Volodymyr Vyotrovich. Kalenka's piece from the nation three years ago reads, Five years ago, Ukraine's Maidan uprising ousted President Viktor Yanukovych to the cheers and support of the West. Politicians and analysts in the U.S. and Europe not only celebrated the uprising as a triumph of democracy, but denied reports of Maidan's ultranationalism, smearing those who warned about the dark side of the uprising as Moscow puppets and useful idiots. Freedom was on the march in Ukraine. Today, increasing reports of far-right violence, ultranationalism, and erosion of basic freedoms are giving the lie to the West's initial euphoria. There are neo-Nazi pogroms against the Roma, rampant attacks on feminists and LGBT groups, book bans, and state-sponsored glorification of Nazi collaborators. These stories of Ukraine's spark nationalism aren't coming out of Moscow. They're being filed by Western media, including U.S.-funded Radio Free Europe, Jewish organizations such as the World Jewish Congress and the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and watchdogs like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and Freedom House, which issued a joint report warning that Kiev is losing the monopoly on the use of force in the country as far-right gangs operate with impunity. Five years after Maidan, the beacon of democracy is looking more like a torchlight march. And uh, the next section, and this is exemplifies the modified limited hangar, is far more than just a Nazi battalion, the Azov battalion, the Azov manifestation that I spoke about in uh, AFA, uh, in, in for the record program 1229 and 1230 is much more important and to the point.
a neo-Nazi battalion in the heart of Europe, continuing the article. Volunteer Ukrainian unit includes Nazis, unquote. Such a, you know, SS unit includes Nazis. And they just, USA, March 10th, 2015. The D.C. establishment's standard defense of Kiev is to point out that Ukraine's far right has a smaller percentage of seats in the parliament than their counterparts in places like France. That's a spurious argument. What Ukraine's far right lacks in poll numbers it makes up for with things Marine Le Pen would only dream of, paramilitary units and free reign on the streets, and by the way, control of the uh, effective control of the Ukrainian military, intelligence service, and national police, and education department, and prominent elements of the uh, political establishment. Continuing. Post-Nadon Ukraine is the world's only nation to have a neo-Nazi formation in its armed forces. The Azov Battalion was initially formed by the neo-Nazi gang Patriot of Ukraine. Andrei Boletsky, the gang's leader, who became Azov's commander, once wrote that, quote, Ukraine's mission is to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade against the Semite-led Untermenschen, unquote. Boletsky is now a deputy in Ukraine's parliament. In the fall of 2014, Azov, which is accused of human rights abuses, including torture by Human Rights Watch and the United Nations, was incorporated in the Ukraine's National Guard. While the group officially denies any neo-Nazi connections, Azov's nature has been confirmed by multiple Western outlets. The New York Times called the battalion openly neo-Nazi, while USA Today, the Daily Beast, the Telegraph, and Haaretz documented group members' proclivity for swastikas, salutes, and other Nazi symbols, and individual fighters have also acknowledged being neo-Nazis. In January of 2018, Azov rolled out this National Dzima Street Patrol Unit, whose members swore fealty to Boletsky and pledged, quote, to restore Ukrainian order, unquote, to the streets. The Vizina quickly distinguished itself by carrying out pogroms against the Roma and LGBT organizations and storming a municipal council. Earlier this year, Kiev announced the storming unit will be monitoring polls in next month's presidential election, which saw Zelensky get elected. In 2017, Congressman Ro Khanna led the effort to ban Azov from receiving U.S. arms and training, but the damage had already been done. The research group Bellingcat proved that Azov had already received access to American grenade launchers, while a Daily Beast investigation showed that U.S. trainers are unable to prevent aid from reaching white supremacists. And Azov itself had proudly posted a video of the unit welcoming NATO representatives. Azov isn't the only far-right formation to get Western affirmation. In December of 2014, Amnesty International accused the Dnipro 1 Battalion of potential war crimes, including, quote, using starvation of civilians as a method of warfare, unquote. Six months later, Senator John McCain visited and praised the battalion. Particularly concerning is Azov's campaign to transform Ukraine into a hub of transnational white supremacy. The unit has recruited neo-Nazis from Germany, the U.S., the U.K., Brazil, Sweden, and uh, and uh, the U.K., Brazil, Sweden, and America. 
Last October, the FBI arrested four California white supremacists who have allegedly received training from Azov. This is a classic example of blowback. U.S. support for radicals abroad ricocheting to hit America. And next, far-right ties to government. Again, modified limited hangout from Radio Free Europe of February 13th of 2019. Ukrainian police declare admiration for Nazi collaborators, unquote. Speaker of Parliament Andrei Parabli co-founded and led two neo-Nazi organizations, the Social National Party of Ukraine, later renamed Svoboda, and Patriot of Ukraine, whose members would eventually form the core of Azov. Although Parabli left the far right in the early 2000s, he hasn't rejected his past. When asked about it in a 2016 interview, Parabli replied that, quote, his values, unquote, haven't changed. Parabli whose autobiography shows him marching with the neo-Nazi Vulsangel symbol used by Aryan nations, regularly meets with Washington think tanks and politicians. His neo-Nazi background is ignored or outright denied. Even more disturbing is the far-right's penetration of law enforcement. Shortly after Maidan, the U.S. equipped and trained the newly founded National Police in what was intended to be a hallmark program buttressing Ukrainian democracy. The Deputy Minister of the Interior, which controls the National Police, is Vadim Troyan, a veteran of Azov and Patriot of Ukraine. In 2014, when Troyan was being considered for police chief of Kiev, Ukrainian Jewish leaders were appalled by his neo-Nazi background. Today, he is deputy of the department running U.S.-trained law enforcement in the entire nation. Earlier this month, Radio Free Europe reported on national police leadership admiring Stefan Bondera, a Nazi collaborator and fascist whose troops participated in the Holocaust on social media. The fact that Ukraine is the fact that Ukraine's police is peppered with far-right supporters explains why neo-Nazis operate with impunity on the streets. And we'll continue with this. We'll probably go back and read the entire article. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how see how the, the next program shapes up from a time standpoint. But a note, the following aspect, that the concluding statement by Lev Lincoln in this article by tolerating neo-Nazi gangs and battalions, state-led Holocaust distortion, and attacks on LGBT and the Roma, the U.S. is telling the rest of Europe, quote, we're fine with this, unquote. The implications, especially at the time of global far-right revival, are profoundly disturbing. Well, they certainly are, and and more disturbing uh, still, and by the way, Stefan Bondera, a reference to whom you just heard, was very clearly in the background picture uh, when uh, Arjun Semenikin, the, the heroic anti-Russian Svoboda member, uh, mayor of Konopop, was being interviewed on uh, PBS NewsHour. The op-ed piece in the New York Times by Lev Lincoln last Sunday, March 6th, mentioned None of this. We will continue with the article in our next program, but we are all out of time. This concludes, for the record, program number 1233, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lie, Part 6. This is being recorded on March 11th of 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.